appreciate that Judy's here because she will completely understand what I'm about to say. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how many of you have ever tried to teach middle schoolers. Um, but I've always said it, it it's probably could be likened not to herding cats, but to herding squirrels. Uh, because they're just like all over the place. Sorry, middle schoolers, but it's true. And they're not just all over the place physically, but they're all over the place mentally, right? So when you're trying to teach middle schoolers, you're not only just trying to get them to like sit still, but but their minds are just kind of all over the place. And so, like, one of the things that, that you often have when you're teaching middle schoolers is that you'll be talking about this thing, and they'll ask a question about this thing that has nothing to do with anything that you're talking about. And so, like, you'll be teaching maybe about the history of Germany, and a student will raise his hand and say, Mrs. Roth, Mrs. Roth, what happens if you leave a pair of dirty socks in your gym locker for a year? Is that bad? And you're kind of put in a quandary, right? Because on the one hand, you have a topic you're trying to teach, and yet for the safety of the child and everyone around them, you feel like you have to answer the question. And so you're like, I'm going to answer that question, but then you keep saying, all right, now back to what I was trying to say. And then somebody answers, and you kind of answer that, and you come back to what I was trying to say. You keep saying that. And the reason I say that, and I'm not trying to mock too much, but it just felt that way, this is kind of how it feels with these conversations between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. That, that he has something he's wanting to say. And they keep coming in with all of these questions and accusations and things that actually have nothing to do with his point. And Jesus, kind of for their good and for the good of those around him, he, he'll answer the questions that they're asking or even answer the accusations that they're bringing. But then he keeps coming back and saying, all right, well, now back to the point I was trying to make. Here's what I'm trying to say. And it's important to remember that because like, the passage that we're looking at today is the same conversation that we looked at last week. This is just part two of that conversation. And, and Jesus had something he wanted to say. And remember, he was speaking to a group of people who, who claimed that they believed in him, right? And some did and some didn't, actually. Some thought they believed in him but didn't. But some actually believed in him. And so Jesus was teaching them last week about what it means to have a true faith. What it means to truly be a disciple. But as he tries to do that, they keep asking him all these random questions. And eventually he's like, no, but here's what I'm trying to teach you. And, and the interesting thing is, like some of the distractions that they bring up, most of them are usually accusations against Jesus. And as we get into the very first accusation that they, they bring against Jesus in this passage, it's important to remember what Jesus had said to them last week. right? Remember what Jesus had told them last week. There's some of the hardest words we hear from Jesus, right? He said, you think you're children of Abraham, you think you're children of God, but you're not. You're actually children of the devil. Those are hard words. And so here's how they respond to those words from Jesus. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now notice, and this is what made me even laugh harder and think more of like middle schoolers. 
Um, because what are the two accusations that they bring against Jesus? He has a demon, right? And what they're saying is, no, no, you're the one. You're the one who actually is a child of Satan. We're not children. You're, you're a child of Satan. And they call him a Samaritan, which they're saying, you're not really a child of Abraham. You're not a real Jew, right? I mean, that's how middle schoolers work, right? Somebody calls them a name. They're not quite, sorry, middle schoolers. I'm just ripping on you today. But they, somebody calls them a name. They're not quite creative enough to come back. And they're like, well, no, you're the stupid dumb head. And they just kind of call him the name back. And that's like kind of what's going on. Jesus says like, no, you're not children of Abraham and you're children of the devil. And they're like, but no, no, you're that, Jesus. You're a child of the devil. You're possessed by a demon. You're a Samaritan. You're not really part of Israel. And uh, I, I love the fact of uh, D.A. Carson says it well. He says, when, when all of their theological arguments fail, they just turn to personal abuse. Right? This is, we see this happen. Um, I, last week I talked about debates. Um, they say you know you've won a debate with somebody when they just start calling you names. Because that means they can't, they have no arguments anymore, and so their best thing is just to start calling you whatever. Um, and so that's what's happening here. They've been trying to argue with Jesus about God's word and what he's been saying, and they're not winning it, so now they just start calling him a bunch of names. No, you're not really a child of Abraham. No, you're not really part of God's children. No, you're actually children of Satan. And, and I find it, you know, Jesus kind of interacts with that a little bit and says, well, that's not, here's how you know that that's not true. Um, but then he kind of ha- does the move where he says, now back to my point. Here's what I'm trying to say. And, and he does that partly by saying, he starts off, he says, truly, truly. Or the NIV says, truly I say to you. But, but whenever Jesus says truly, truly, it's a way of him saying, listen up. <laughs> Here, I'm saying something you better not miss. And in this passage, it's like, this is the point I've been trying to get across to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And remember now, this is coming out of last week's, part of last week's conversation. Jesus is having this conversation with people. Some believe in him. Some think they believe in him, but don't actually believe in him. So he wants to teach them about true faith. And so they're bringing all these other accusations. That's not really what I want to talk about. I want to teach you what it means to have true faith. And so he's really reminding them about what he said last week, right? That a true faith keeps his word. Now, last week it said, if you're truly my disciple, you will abide in my word. Um, Keeping his word, it means the same thing. It's, It's not the same word, but it is meaning the same thing. And so... I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because that was like my whole sermon last week. But, but we have to talk about it a little bit because it's important to this part of what this passage. Um, and, and the point that Jesus is making is a true faith abides in his word and a true faith keeps his word, obeys, it follows. It, and some of the, here's some of the logic behind all of that. One of the things that Jesus is pointing out, and we'll see it comes up later on, is he says, in order for you to have faith in God, you have to know who he is. You can't, you can't trust him. You can't have faith in him if you don't know who he is. 
But how do you know who he is? The only way you can know who God is is through his word because that's how he's revealed himself. So if you're not reading his word, you can't know God and you can't have a true faith in him. But if you are reading his word and you know who he is, then you can actually have this true faith. And then kind of connected with that is not only what leads up to a true faith, but it's also this kind of outflow of a true faith. If you truly know who God is and you truly have faith in him and truly trust him, then you're going to trust the things that he says about the world, about you, and how to live in the world. You're going to follow it. You're, you're going to listen to him, right? And that's why Jesus eventually says to the, these Jews, he says, you say he's our God, but you have not known him. You don't know who he is. And Jesus kind of throws a shot. He says, I know him. If I were to say that I didn't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But then he says this, but I do know him, and I what? And I keep his word. Right? He, he puts this connection between knowing God and keeping his word. Because I know God, I, I know who he is, and I trust him, and then I keep his word. I follow him. I do what he says to do. And you know, and part of this is why the conversation starts to change over and talk about Abraham. is because we're going to see from what Jesus has to say about Abraham and actually what the Bible has to say about Abraham is that Abraham had a true faith. He had a faith that flowed from a knowledge of who God is and a faith that flowed into him keeping God's word. Right? So Jesus says this about Abraham. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. I'm going to explain what this means in a second, but just notice how the true faith of Abraham, how it kind of changed who he was, how you can see that in him. He rejoiced that he would see Jesus' day because he knew his God. He kept his word. And then it was a faith that actually created rejoicing and gladness. It, it wasn't just like a stoic, I will do what God wants. It was rejoicing and gladness in what God has called him to do. And, and actually, uh, John Calvin says that that word exalt, it's more than just rejoicing and gladness. It's a vehement zeal and an ardent affection, right? He says, through the knowledge of Christ, or though the knowledge of Christ was so obscure, Abraham was inflamed by so strong a desire that he preferred the enjoyment of it to everything that was reckoned desirable. That's what comes about from true faith. It's not just a joy and a gladness. It's like a zeal and an affection and being so inflamed that even though he sees some of the promises of God so far off, he says those are still way more valuable than anything he sees, sees right in front of him here. And that's really what we're talking about. As I'm going I'm to read a, long, a longer portion of Scripture in a second to help us understand what does it mean that Abraham saw Jesus' day, right? Because the Jews get confused about this. Like, what are you talking about? Um, but, but Scripture gives us an, an understanding of it. And I, I'm gonna, it's, so it's a longer passage than I would normally read in the middle of a sermon, but it's helpful to understand. How did Abraham 
see Jesus' day? And how was Abraham have, how did he have this faith that was a passion? So that he saw that these things coming were more valuable than anything the world had to offer. And it comes in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them. And greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, and that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The, the longer I dove into these, the connection between that description of Abraham and what Jesus is saying, the more I saw the connections between it. I mean, it begins and says, all right, here's Abraham's faith. By faith, he did what? He obeyed. When he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, and he had no idea where he was going. Just God told him to go, and he went, right? That's... Um, You could say, by faith, Abraham kept God's word. God told him to go, and he went. Why? Because he knew his God. He trusted him. He knew God was faithful, right? We find that out. That's why they believed when, when Sarah... Well, I didn't put that one in there. Sarah, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age... Since she considered him faithful who had promised. Why did she have faith? Because she knew her God. Why did, she keep, why did they keep God's word? Because they knew their God. They knew he was faithful. They knew who he was, and so they, they trusted him. So they obeyed. They followed. They kept his word. But then we read this part. This is, they all died in faith. And this is talking about Abraham, Sarah. It's talking about Abel and Enoch and Noah. And, and come after this, it's talking about Moses and a bunch of other people. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. Right, this is... This is how Abraham saw Jesus' day. He saw it from afar, it says. They they saw it from afar and they greeted it from afar by faith. Because God had promised it. God said it was coming. And so they said, we know it's coming and we rejoice in it. 
And yet, they never actually fully received those promises in their day. Right? Abraham never saw uh, the kingdom that he was promised as children, as many as the sands of the seashore, right? He never saw his family being a blessing to all of the nations. He didn't see it in this life, but he saw it by faith. And, you know, that's one of the things, uh, you know, we've talked a lot recently about a true faith being about knowing God and, and obeying God. And that's true. That's a big part of true faith. But also a, a massive part of real faith, true faith, is believing in things and promises of God that we can't see. Um, I mean, that's why, that's why Hebrews begins with this famous verse, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It's true faith. There are things that God has promised that we can't see right now. Do we trust him in those things? There's things God has told us to do, right? That we don't understand, that they don't make sense. Do we trust him in those things, even when we can't see it? And not only just trusting him in those things, but as Jesus said, Abraham didn't just trust God in those things. He rejoiced and was glad in the things that he could not see. And he rejoiced and was glad so much in these future promises of God that actually he saw those things as more valuable than anything this world had to offer him. That's what, that's what true faith is. And and, and one of the things I always want to make sure we understand is that that kind of faith, the faith that's looking to things unseen, to, to promises, and, and there's a lot more to that than just promises, but to things unseen, that actually has a massive effect on how we live here now. Um, you know, there used to be a, a saying that, that would go around. They would talk, talk about people and say, you know, that guy's so heavenly-minded, he's of no earthly good, right? You don't hear that anymore because most people are so earthly-minded that they're of no heavenly good, right? But, um, you know, and I've met some people like that, but, but this passage is saying that's actually not a helpful way to think about it. That, that uh, a heavenly-mindedness or a or a faith in things unseen, or a faith in promises that are in the future, actually changes how we live now. That that kind of a heavenly mindedness makes us actually an earthly good here. It changes how we live. That, that was the same, that was, that was Abraham, right? Why did Abraham go wandering off into a country that wasn't his? Because God had promised it. He didn't see it. But it changed the way he lived. It changed the way he raised his children. It changed where he traveled. It changed the way he worked. The decisions he made changed everything because he was looking forward to promises that he could not see. And he trusted his God. And it's the same for us. Looking forward to these promises of God that we cannot see has to change the way we raise our kids. It has to change the way we go to work every day has to change the way we buy our cars and houses and clothes. Because it, it changes 
how we live now because it allows us to have this faith in a God who's ruling and reigning over the earth. And we know that these promises are coming and we can't see them yet, but we live like they're here now. Because they are, in a way, because God has promised them. And it, what it does is it allows us to now live in the world with this kind of radical obedience of an Abraham to be able to, by faith, step out into situations where we have no idea what's going to happen, but we're going to do it because God has said, this is good. I mean, you may be faced sometime in the near future where you're, you're set up where you have to make a decision that's either going to cost you to lose your job or you're going to have to make a decision. You either lose your job and be faithful to God or you are not faithful to God and you keep your job. And you're wrestling with, how do I do that? Do I remain faithful to God and lose my job? How am I going to make ends meet? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to... You're going to be called to step out into a situation that's completely unknown to you. How do you make that decision? By trusting in the promises of God that you can't see yet. Say, I'm going to step into this unknown because my God has said he will care for me. He'll provide for me. I've watched him do it in the past and I know he'll do it into the future. So I step out in faith and I trust him. That changes our life now. We raise our kids that way. We go to work. And it also allows us to step into those kind of difficult situations with joy and gladness because God is there. He has promises for us. That's what true faith looks like. And, and you know, that, that faith is the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about when he says this. Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You know, like I said, this is the point Jesus has been trying to get to, right? He's already said, all right, if you're truly my disciple, you'll abide in my word. You'll keep my word, right? If you're truly my disciple, you'll keep my word and the truth will set you free, right? But he hasn't got to the last part yet, and that's what he wanted to get to. If you're truly my disciples and you have true faith and you abide in my word and you keep my word and, and you're set free from, through that, you will never see death. That's, that's the end goal. He wanted to get there, and it took him a while to get there because he kept getting distracted. But, but that's what he's talking about. He said, if you're truly my disciples, if you, if you truly believe in me, if you have a true faith, you will never see death. And that's more powerful, I think, than most of us imagine. Um, I mean, he's talking about this kind of ultimate salvation that's awaiting us, uh, this eternal life that he has in store for us. And, you know, the, the, the Jews look at him like he's crazy, right? What are you talking about? We've known lots of people who had, Abraham had faith and he died, and right? I'm sure most of us are thinking, okay, well, I'm going to die someday. <laughs> I know a lot of faithful people who've had a true faith over the years. They've died, so What's Jesus talking about? How will they never see death? Um, even Hebrews 11 that we just read talked about people dying. But, but read the rest of it. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them 
and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And what I love about that, um, they died, but when they died, what did they see? Did they see death? Or did they see the promises of God and the fulfillment of God's promises? Um, That's what they saw. And they rejoiced in it. They actually didn't see death. Um, They didn't even taste death. They tasted the fulfillment of God's promises. And, you know, I I love uh, Herman Ritterboss says, those who believe in Jesus' word already have eternal life now. Death is no longer facing them. It's behind them. When they pass away, they will not be handed over to death, but to life. Right? That, that's true of us now. It's not like we will have eternal life someday in the future. We have it now, as you're sitting here. And, and that means death is no longer an issue for you. It's not. And, and by faith, you can't see that. But by faith, in this life, you can't see that. But by faith, you see beyond that, that death is not an issue. And again, that does what? I mean, that changes everything, doesn't it? It changes everything about how we raise our kids, how we go to work, how we buy things. And, you know, and part of the reason why this changes everything about how we live here and now is uh, whether people want to admit it or not, this is, this is everyone's greatest fear, is death. It's, it's hanging over people. Um, and, and it's why, like, you can read history and you've seen so many people try to come up with ways to overcome death, right? It's why if, um, you can read stuff from the tech world right now. They think, you know, Google thinks they're going to overcome death, and, and find some way to have eternal life through technology. They literally say that. Um, why? Because that's everyone's greatest fear. And, and it just kind of hangs over your head, and, and it affects every decision you make. Think about, think about how many people make decisions based on whether they're going to die or not. They buy the safest car. They go to the safest school. They go to the safest neighborhood. They go to the, they buy this to be safe. They buy this to be, it, it, it affects everything. And then imagine what it would feel like to live without that fear, for it to be completely gone, um, to not be there, not for you or even for your children or your grandchildren. Um, imagine living already certain of life and certain that you will not even taste death because it has no power over you, that, that you've been transferred from life into death or from death into life. Uh, like that's, that's the kind of freedom that Jesus was talking about that comes through a true faith. Freedom from sin, yes, but he also talks about freedom from death. To be able to live now in this world unafraid of dying, faithfully following our God, looking forward to the promises and the kingdom that he has for us. And you know, that prompts the, the Jews to say, who do you think you are? To Jesus, right? Or actually they say, 
who do you make yourself out to be, right? Because they, they understand what he's saying. They say, you're saying that you can save people from death? Only God can save anybody from death. Are you making yourself out to be God? And I love it because the answer is, no, Jesus isn't making himself God. He is. That's why he says, truly, truly, pay attention. Right? Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was a twinkle in his mother's eye, Jesus is. And, you know, it harkens back to the very first verse of the gospel where we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus says, I was in the beginning, I was with God in the beginning, and I was God in the beginning. Harkens back to Exodus 3, right, where Moses, God's calling Moses to lead his people out of the promised land, lead his people into an unknown. Moses says, who am I supposed to tell them is sending me? He says, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. And, you know, this is Jesus' answer to all of the accusations, all of the distractions being brought against him. He says, I am. I am in the beginning. I am now. I am in the future. I'm truly man. I'm truly God. And I have the power over sin and death. That's why I can say, if you believe in me, you will never fear death because I am. You know, and I mentioned this briefly earlier when we looked at the catechism, but it's important for us. It's absolutely essential for our salvation that Jesus is truly man and truly God at the same time. If he's not one, if he's, if he's only one or the other, he's not a perfect savior. If he's only man, he's not strong enough to bear the wrath of God and he can't be our savior. If he's just a good guy, a good teacher, he's not a savior. But if he's not human, if he's only God, he can't bear our sin in our place because he's not a human. He has to be both at the same time, truly God, truly man, to be a perfect Savior um, and to grant us that eternal life that he has to offer to, to save us from sin and death. And you know, I hinted at this before and I want to wrap up by pointing out not only is that foundational for our salvation. If Jesus wasn't truly God and truly man, he's not our Savior. But he is. And so he's our Savior. And then that, again, that changes how we live now. I mean, again, how, do, how can we trust and obey, right? How can, we, how can we keep God's word and abide in his word when, when his word teaches so many things contrary to what the world around us is teaching? Well, we can trust and obey because we know that he is the I am. He, he existed before the world was created. He created it all. He rules and reigns over it. How could you not trust him? How could you not trust the God who created everything and created you? We, we know who he is. We know that he's been faithful. We know that he's not going to lead us astray. We know that he's going to lead us into what is good and glorious and beautiful. So why wouldn't we trust him? How can we, how can we 
live in this world now that we talked about already. It's so messed up. We see war and violence and turmoil everywhere. How can we live in this with this faith on these future promises that we can't see? And how can we rely on God now in the midst of that? Well, we can do that because he's, he's the I am. He's ruling and reigning over the creation right now. He's been doing it from the beginning. And, and that means when he promises something, there's nothing that can stop him from fulfilling his promise. It will happen. If God promises, it will happen. No questions asked, so why would you ever doubt it? We can live now trusting in those promises and live with this kind of radical, obedient faith now. Right? How can we, how can we live in this world where we're surrounded by death and dying? How can we live unafraid of death and dying? Rest fully in our salvation. We do it because he's the eternal God. And before he even created the world, he knew you. And he called you. And he made you his own. And he said, you're mine. And I've given you life now. And you will not taste death. And when he says that, he means it. And so we trust him. We rest in him. We live in that freedom. Unafraid of death. Following Jesus wherever he tells us to go. That's what it means to have a true faith. That's how it affects us now and affects us tomorrow and affects us in 20 years and and off into eternity. It will be a constant resting and trusting in the God that we know. The God who has existed from all of eternity and who knows us. And we get up the next day and we say, I know who you are. You've set me free. I trust you. I will rejoice in that. And even though I don't know what's coming ahead of me, I'm going to keep my eyes on you. Let's come to him in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning um, in our own weakness. Father, I think we all come knowing that we would love to live completely free from fear of death. We would love to live completely resting in you and your salvation, completely following you wherever you want us to go, and yet we're weak. Uh, We often don't. We often trust in ourselves. We often go our own way. We live in fear and anxiety of the future. We live in fear and anxiety of the unknown. We live in fear of death. And so, Father, we ask your forgiveness. We ask you to forgive us for those things because you've spoken clearly about them. And not only do we ask that you would forgive us, Father, but we ask that your spirit would move and transform us so that more and more each day we would rest in you more fully and trust in your promises. We pray that you would strengthen our faith and open our eyes to see you clearly so that we would know you and trust you and obey you and live right now in that faith. Help us to raise our kids in that faith. Help us to go to work each day in that faith. Help us to buy and sell and work in this world by that faith. And may you do a work in and through us. Father, help us to live in this world completely unafraid of death, knowing that you've already given us life. We have it now. And we will not see nor taste death. 
but will see and taste life from now throughout eternity. Help us to see that more fully each day. Help us to live in that faith each day. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.